This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Pentagon will let up to 90% of its employees come back to the building this week. The department's moving to Health Protection Code Alpha. FCW reports Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says the department expects supervisors to continue telework and flexible scheduling. Cyber accreditation at the Defense Department could cost more soon. Four people inside the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Board tell FedScoop new requirements could drive the price increases. Those requirements would include more experienced assessors than the CMMC board originally required for controlled unclassified systems. The Office of the Secretary of Defense will launch an analysis of the state of competition in the defense industrial base. OSD will give the findings to the White House Competition Panel. GovExec reports the analysis comes from a July 9th executive order. The Biden administration's defense budget request is $715 billion in constant dollars. That's more than the Pentagon spent during the military buildup of the 1980s, but the size and the capability of the force is far less today. Major General Arnold Panaro, U.S. Marine Corps retired CEO of the Panaro Group. He's chairman of the board of the National Defense Industrial Association and a member of the Defense Business Board, and he's author of the new book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. Arnold, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You wrote your own book blurb so eloquently on LinkedIn yesterday. You wrote this. In constant dollars, DOD is spending more than it did at the peak of the Reagan buildup for a sub substantially smaller and in some cases less capable fighting force. How did we get here, Arnold? Well, Francis, always a privilege to join you on this wonderful program. And I would say as we come out of Afghanistan after 20 years, we're at a serious inflection point for our national security. During the last 20 years, China has built up their military capability, both in terms of quantity, but also in quality, and particularly made advances in some of the key technological areas that are gonna be the basis of future conflict. So we've got to focus here in the Pentagon, in the Congress, not on how much we spend, but what we get for what we spend. As you mentioned, and as I outlined in, in my new book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force, we're spending more in constant dollars in the peak of the Reagan buildup that many considered the golden age for defense. The Biden budget is larger than the largest Trump budget, and yet we have one million fewer active duty military on the job. We have 35 to 40% fewer fighting units, whether it's Army divisions and brigade, Navy battle force ships, Air Force fighter squadrons and tactical fighter inventory. So we just are not getting the bang for the buck we should for the dollars we spend. And I hate to say it, the Chinese are getting more for their yuan than we're getting for the US dollar. So we've got to make some fundamental reforms and changes and that's what my new book is all about. The contrast, Arnold, is striking to me. Congresswoman Luria, the vice chair of the Hask, was on the program a couple of weeks ago and reminded me that in the peak of the buildup, the Navy had 600 ships in its fleet, and we're at about 300 today, and thinking about getting to 355 in 20 years. How do we get that balance back that you're referring to, Arnold, about getting best value for the dollars that we're spending 
not even thinking about quantity and, and power, just how do we get that balance back? Well, she's spot on, Francis. I'm glad you brought that up because, for example, in the Navy, the amount of money we're spending on Navy ships has gone up 70%, but the number of ships we are buying for those dollars has gone down 70%. So there are three major areas where we've got to make significant changes in the Congress and the Pentagon to get the output that we need so that we are better, faster, and cheaper than China, our pacing threat and major adversary. One is we've got to reduce DOD's massive overhead which has gone from 5% to a little under 20% of the budget. It's over $350 billion a year, a million people working in the back office and headquarters. And we all know that conflict, future conflict is gonna be won by warfighters, not by people in the back office. Uh, we've also got to change the DOD acquisition system. We spend over three, $400 billion a year on goods and services, supplies and equipment. And about all you can say politely about the outcome or the output is spend more, take longer, get less. Many people have labored at this. Frank Kendall, Ash Carter, Ellen Ward have done yeoman's work to try to improve it, but it's not how far we've come, it's how far we need to go. And we're a long way off from basically getting the bang for the buck in the acquisition area. And Congress has got to reform the way it does business. They have three overlapping and duplicative processes, the budget resolution, authorizations and appropriation, it's totally broken. They never get their work done on time. We haven't had a, a full year appropriations bills on time on one October for 25 years. We've started the last 20 years with continuing resolutions. There's no way we're gonna keep pace with China and get the advances we need if we don't make some of these fundamental changes. Again, my book has got 27 chapters and 500 pages, and I outline specifically in many different areas what we need to change to basically get a better outcome than we're getting today. And I apologize in advance. I, I went through this book. There's no possible way I can do it justice in the amount of time that you and I have. We've talked about that back office system on a number of occasions, Arnold. The administration is undertaking a, a look at the same kinds of reform efforts that previous administrations have looked at. How would you like to see them look at that back office differently than previous secretaries of defense have? I mean, I think they have to say, I think they need to basically understand the compelling timing threat that we have. The good news is there's bipartisan recognition in the Congress that China is the pacing threat. The administration recognizes it as well. And so I think it gives everybody, they feel the pressure and feel the heat to basically get more bang for the buck that the dollars we spend. And frankly, They've got to take this on. Mark Esper sort of got started with David Norquist, looking at the 28 defense agencies that have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. The Defense Logistics Agency does more business with the Department of Defense than does Lockheed Martin, the largest contractor, and yet they don't use commercial best practices in the way they go about doing their business. If you go on one of the online retailers as a private citizen, you'll find out, you know, do they have the product you want, how much it's gonna cost, when you're gonna get it. If you're the tank turret mechanic repairman in the army and you order a part, you don't know if DLA has it, you don't know when you're gonna get it, and you don't know how much it costs. So bringing proven world-class business practices into the Department of Defense, reducing the minute management layers, reducing the hundreds of thousands of people that work in these areas, we also have three over 300,000 of our most expensive and most valuable troops, active duty military, serving in inherently non-governmental jobs. So we need to get them out of the rear with the gear 
and put them back at the tip of the spear. Arnold, nobody knows this stuff better than you do. It's great. I'm grateful to have you on the program this and every time you're here. Thank you, my friend. You're quite welcome. You can find a link to Arnold's book at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, fighting cyber threats on every.gov website. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the answers coming in from industry experts. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back to Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. We'll build new cyber protections for the .gov domain. It's asking industry for information about registry and lifecycle services for agency domains. Ron Marks is president of ZPN National Security and Cyber Strategies, former CIA official and former intelligence advisor to two Senate majority leaders. Ron, welcome back. It's good to see you again. Do I read this as another step towards CISA consolidating autonomy over civilian agency networks, or do I read this as just a one-off as part of its effort to provide more cyber services to the individual agencies? You know, it's interesting you say that. I mean, there's this grand collision going on here right now. All of a sudden, you've got, uh, you know, you've got a, a national cyber director coming in. Uh, you've got the, actually the head of Jen Easterly coming in at the head of CISA. Uh, you've had this executive order out there. Uh, you've got this infrastructure build. You've got the national security strategy. I mean, everybody's sort of on a move here right now. You know, I think for CISA, it begins to lay the groundwork. I think it's beginning the process of, at least on the domestic side, telling people, you know, all right, you know, what do we need to do here? How do we protect ourselves? Um, you know, how we're coordinating with DOD, again, I'm concerned about that. I mean, if you're a company at this point, you're, you're up to your elbows in CMMC right now. Uh, you've got someone else sort of telling you what to do in these different areas. Um, if you're the government on this side, great. You know, what kind of rules do we need to follow here? Uh, I think you're going to see some things all over the place. I am sure they're going to be written in Shakespearean language in terms of the response uh, to be careful not to uh, commit too much, but at the same time, you know, again, try to get something laid out. So I think it's an initial step. Uh, and then I think we're going to have to look at the results and then see where we go from there. At what point do you expect to see, if ever, um, other pieces of cyber authority or autonomy move from other places in the civilian sector to CISA. One in particular that I think of is FedRAMP that's lived at the General Services Administration for, what, 10 years, 12 years, something like that. And I wonder if at some point that doesn't become something that moves to CISA or, or whether people start to talk about whether it should. I, I know you've heard me ride this hobby horse before, so let, let me get back up on it again. There is a reason for a national cyber director. And one of the issues for them is who does what? Because while CISA may be an agency at this point, it's gonna be competing with a lot of other agencies at an equal level, and that's fine, it should. But they can essentially say, well, look, you're not controlling our budget. You're not controlling our program. You're acting in an advisory capacity here. Until someone says, all right, boys, this is it. This is gonna be the centerpiece. Uh, this is how we're going to direct the civilian side. This is how they're going to interact with the defense side. This is how we're going to do it for the U.S. government writ large. Um, it's not going to work. Uh, you can try to run this thing out of the NSC. Uh, NSC is not an operational organization. You can try to run it out of OMB. They're not that kind of operational organization. You've got the National Cyber Director. Uh, you know, I know Chris Inglis is just on the ground at this point, probably with a few staff, but this is a good example of the kind of thing 
that he should be doing, saying across the government, okay, now, CISA's got to charge, let's move. I've got program and budget sitting up here. Let's cooperate and get things moving. Yeah, the more you talk, Ron, the more pieces I think about that are distributed different places, the more pieces that I think, I think of them as a mosaic, that it will be Chris Inglis's job to put onto this, this broader picture so that we see a picture rather than just having tiles laying all over the place. Am I thinking about it the right way, do you think? You know, I, I think so. I, I, you know, again, if I'm in the private sector and I've talked to a lot of my friends in the private sector at this point, I mean, they're looking for the government right now and they're saying, all right, well, they come in four varieties. Uh, either don't bother us, tell us what to do, tell us what to do, but don't cost us too much and take your time about it. And the fourth is, who do we talk to? Um, you know, it's not just CISA out there. It's FBI providing advice. Uh, NSA now has a private outreach. Uh, NIST, of course, has been the great rules setter throughout this process, and well done them. Um, you know, and DOD is coming in the entire defense industrial base at this point is looking at CMMC. Uh, and, you know, the initial reports from that have not been good. Uh, and I don't mean in terms of DOD's uh, capabilities of putting it together, but in the fundamental, you know, grading of these defense industrial based companies. So we got a lot of ground to cover here. And again, you need to have a coordinator who can look at civilian as well as as well as defense sector, pull it together for the USG uh, and then push it ahead. And that goes back to a national cyber director. There's a reason these guys built that. And again, my fingers crossed in terms of program and money. It's the only way he's going to get listened to. Uh, another place where there is a cyber authority is within the individual agencies, at least authority to interact with uh, the pieces of the private sector that that agency uh, works with, regulates, or whatever. I'm thinking of the Caesar office at the Department of Energy, and right. there are others across government. Um, at what point does somebody start to say, do you think, again, if ever, we need to kind of reform these efforts, consolidate them, streamline them, some other adjective that we hear in Washington time after time after time, Ron? Well, I think budget may do it to some extent. Uh, we're going to see, I think, some flat years coming ahead here, which, as you know, means negative uh, growth uh, overall. So people are going to start looking, I think, at some duplication. You know, again, this goes back to the ugly business um, of building a budget. I realize budget building is about as sexy as looking at the selling the, the car based on the transmission. Uh, but the fact of the matter is it's, it's the money that matters. I, I'm well aware of the DOE. Uh, a challenge uh, in terms of their setting out standards. Uh, I was reminded about it personally at one point, in fact, by someone who ran it and was somewhat dismissive of the DOD effort. And all I can say on that is that we've got to get our collective act together at this point. We just cannot afford um, financially as well as from the, the number of break-ins into this rickety cyber building that we've built uh, that, frankly, if it were a, a building, it would have been condemned by now. Uh, we've got to get our collective act together on this. Again, this goes back to the to a national cyber director with budget and program control who can say to a DOE, look, uh, I have the president's ear at this point. I'm in charge of this program uh, overall, and you need to do X. Uh, less with, than a minute left, Ron. Uh, you've used the word budget or referred to it uh, by my count 614 times in this interview. I may be a little bit off. Um, <laughs> is that the main thing that you'll watch in the in the weeks and months ahead? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I realize that 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 mantra at this point has been drilled into me, but it's also been drilled into me for 40 years worth of experience, which is that when you sit around the table to negotiate, 
uh, especially when I was dealing with efforts in an intelligence community that had 16 separate members, even if they had a couple of different pots of money that were coming from. People will listen to you and will respond to jawboning to some extent. But ultimately, if you have financial control, for instance, as an Office of Management and Budget does, in the final analysis, this is a decision that is made on their part. You have the budget, people listen. If you do not have the money, control, or at least some suzerainty over it uh, to say where it goes, or at least suggest strongly where it goes, then you're just not a player. Ron Marks, thanks very much as always. Thank you, Francis. Up next, keeping the Pentagon in the international security loop. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the problems ahead if the State Department has to go solo. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Welcome back to Drawdown in Afghanistan, highlighting the challenges of security assistance the U.S. provides around the world. One proposal is to consolidate those programs the Defense Department shares with state into a single program at Foggy Bottom. That plan, though, would be a big, a quote, big mistake, according to Brent Sadler, senior fellow for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology at the Heritage Foundation. He's writing about security cooperation and assistance programs with co-author Janae Diaz in Breaking Defense. Brent, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You write in this piece that America spends billions each year on security cooperation and assistance programs. Your sense is that uh, we're not getting results to match the investment. Why so? Well, so some of these programs have come and gone too quickly. They've been managed uh, with uh, milestones or markers of success after they've been implemented. So they tend to diverge from their initial uh, intention or plan. Uh, that's not to say that we haven't had successes in the past. One program in particular that I'd like to draw attention to is the Maritime Security Initiative, which was narrowly focused. It was also focused on a small group of countries, but it had a very clear objective, which was improved maritime domain awareness in a very tight geographic region, the South China Sea. So if you have certain kind of characteristics, certain requirements, uh, it's very likely and it's very, it's very possible that you can get an interagency of large group of groups of people working together on a unity of effort because it's these programs are very complex they have lots of myriad authorities and then of course you have congress that is also has lots of authorities that they place on top and uh monitoring and oversight that they have you write in this piece state consults with defense on its security assistance designs defense then implements state programs as well as its own security cooperation programs such as multinational military exercises and military training and advising does that model work well now broadly and where does it potentially go off track in the execution the way you described it well i, I think it all comes down to people uh, the personalities involved. And so when you have groups of people working in across the interagency at USAID State, Department of Defense, and even the different services like Navy, Air Force, uh, Marine Corps, it, it's really important that you have the personalities in, in place that actually are willing to work and collaborate together. The processes that are in place uh, do allow that. But again, it comes down to personalities. And, and I do think that if you have an overarching strategy and you have guidance from the top, it makes it more likely to empower that kind of collaboration and camaraderie across agencies that otherwise 
it's really a, a challenge to do because there's just so much complication in the, the funding lines. You write, uh, reforms to security assistance should encourage or compel state to design its programs in closer coordination with the Pentagon. Where should that coordination be focused in your view? Well, I think it depends on the program in question. So if it is, if it has to do with institution building, then that's probably not DOD. It might be in the Department of Justice, but if it is something like we're talking about maritime domain awareness, that's very likely going to be Navy, and it's very likely to be Space Force in the, in the near future. Uh, it really needs to be what is the strategic objective, uh, and it needs to be narrowly defined, and then it should be that agency that's best placed with the expertise and the personnel that can be sent downrange to the, the targeted country to help in the most effective means. I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Brent, that one of the proposals on the table is to move this all to state. Why is that not a great idea in your view? Well, I think any time that you would put, with, without a lot of conditions and uh, you know, emphasis on the personalities to work together in an interagency approach that's, that's A, sustainable, and B, most importantly, delivering results, uh, you, might have, you, know, you may have distraction. You may diverge from what the objectives are for the military security assistance. And that's really the focus of the, of the piece that Janae and I wrote, is that, that that was missing. And so working with Department of Defense on identifying very specific military operational needs, uh, such as access, interoperability, could also be having a country with a specific capability, like cutters, or maritime police or coast guard cutters, that has to be form foremost in any of the planning, and it may not necessarily be resident in the thinking at State Department unless you have DOD military planners involved in that process, deeply involved in the process throughout. Brent, thanks very much for coming on to talk about this. <clears throat> Excuse me, regards to uh, your co-author, Janae, and thanks for your time today. Well, thank you very much for having me on, and aloha from Hawaii. You can find a link to Brent's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources, and every episode of our show is on the website, too. You get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest in Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? 
it's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20 year old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract. GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.